Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the growing influence of the pro-Putin Republicans in Trump's GOP and discuss the role of those who have seen Trump in action in the Oval Office with the latest to go public, former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, who reveals that Trump wanted to drop missiles on Mexico and shoot Black Lives Matter protesters in the legs. Joining us is the first person to go public in the pages of the New York Times under the pseudonym of Anonymous with an insider's portrayal of dangerous dysfunction in the White House. Miles Taylor, the co-founder of the Renew America Movement, a coalition of over 150 members and former members of the Republican Party, calling for strengthening the rule of law and restoring government ethics. Having served as Chief of Staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, under the Trump administration, in 2018 he wrote an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times providing eyewitness insight into White House chaos, administration instability, and the people working to keep Donald Trump's reckless impulses in check. His subsequent book, a New York Times bestseller, is A Warning, and we will discuss the authoritarian direction the GOP is heading in and the treacherous alliances between fascist and feudal petrostates that are driving inflation and pushing us into a recession while making record profits from the price of oil, which in turn could end up financing a Trump comeback in 2024. Then we'll look into the alliances of Putin's Russia and Mohammed bin Salman's Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Zayed's United Arab Emirates and how the war in Ukraine, which makes no sense strategically for Putin, is nevertheless reaping a windfall for him with the price of oil at record highs. This in turn is causing pain at the pump for American voters who could bring about Republican electoral victories in November, laying the groundwork for an authoritarian criminal regime to emerge in the United States in 2024 in alliance with the fascist and feudal triumvirate of Russia, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, otherwise known as OPEC+. Joining us is Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist and explorer. He is the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had a first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel and insurgents groups. His books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad and License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror and we will discuss the role of mercenaries and private military contractors in Ukraine on both sides as well as investigate the strategy of those anti-democratic theocracies and autocracies who are making as much money as they can from oil for as long as they can, and their project to install a fellow gangster as head of the United States. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Miles Taylor, the co-founder of the Renew America Movement, a coalition of over 150 members and former members of the Republican Party, calling for strengthening the rule of law and restoring government ethics. 
Having served as Chief of Staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under the Trump administration, in 2018 he wrote an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times providing eyewitness insight into the White House chaos, administrative instability and the people working to keep Donald Trump's reckless impulses in check. His subsequent book, a New York Times bestseller, is a warning. Welcome to Background Briefing, Miles Taylor. Ian, great to be with you as always. Well, thanks for joining us, Miles. And we've heard yet another insider from the White House go public, apparently in this new book by former Secretary of Defense Esper, who mentions that apparently that Donald Trump wanted to have the military shoot at the legs of Black Lives Matter protesters and and fire missiles into Mexico. But I recall going back in the very early days of the administration with the the first chief of staff, General Kelly, apparently Donald Trump uh, wanted Kelly to have the U.S. Marines shoot at Mexicans crossing the border. So this is hardly news. So is there any way that people like yourself and others and Generals Mattis and others who served in the White House and were in the Oval Office and saw Trump in action. Is there any way there can be a coordinated educational process here where the American public, can, particularly the supporters of Donald Trump, can recognize who he is, how he behaves, and to the extent to which it, it seems he's even getting worse now in order to head him off in 2024? Because he, it looks like he's on a roll. Well, uh, I think you touch on something really important, Ian, and, and I'm going to be nakedly honest about that in just one second. But I, I think to start with, the takeaway from this whole, you know, shoot protesters in the leg thing to me is that Donald Trump's cruelty uh, was quite continuous throughout the administration. And, you know, during the, the reelection period, that was something I was out there very publicly you know, sounding the alarm about is is what he had said exactly as you noted when it came to migrants at the southern border is Trump had been very explicit with us, not just on one occasion, but multiple occasions that in his words, he didn't want to kill the migrants necessarily, but wanted to slow them down and deter them from coming to the border and believed that they should be shot in the legs by U.S. troops to stop them at the border. I mean, you know, I want people just to sit back and mentally time travel back to, I don't know, let's say the Clinton years or the Bush years. Can anyone imagine Clinton or, or Bush or Obama being reported to have wanted to shoot innocent pregnant women and children in the legs at the border? I mean, it would be the single biggest scandal of any of those presidencies. Yet with Donald Trump, it's a footnote. And then here comes former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper with yet another footnote of Trump wanting to shoot innocent American citizens for exercising their First Amendment rights. So to your point, Ian, um, you know, this is how deeply, truly disturbed the man is. Forget that he was president of the United States. Any person who would want to do something like this, we would say is mentally unstable. We would say is a disturbed person that shouldn't be given responsibility that should potentially be watched over by the authorities because of their sickening impulses. Uh, yet Donald Trump, as you note, is trying to remain in our political system, is considering 
running for president again. And it's one of the reasons why we need people who served in that administration to very consistently, consistently and methodically talk about who he is. Now, this is where I'm going to be nakedly honest. I've got to express my deep, deep personal disappointment that more folks haven't done that. Um, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of them. Uh, you know, folks probably read accounts a few months ago of a quiet group of Trump administration officials coming together and talking about, you know, working to thwart his 2024 plans. Um, I'm disappointed to say that a lot of the folks involved in those conversations are still scared to come forward publicly. They're still worried about retribution. They're still worried about Trump's famously vindictive personality. And, and that's remained a challenge. Um, you know, I know Mark Esper, and he's a, a well-meaning public servant. Uh, but I do think folks like Mark, it would have been helpful for them to have come out before the election, before Americans had to make their decision. Now, by a thin margin, they decided not to reelect Donald Trump, but uh, that was too close for comfort. And if he does it again, we need more of the Mark Espers out there ahead of time, ready to stop that from happening. So that's my perspective. We're working every day, frankly, to try to get more people to come forward. Um, and it's it's critical for our democracy that people simply tell the truth about who this person is. And again, I'm speaking with Miles Taylor, the co-founder of the Renew American Movement, a coalition of over 150 members and former members of the Republican Party. He served as chief of staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. And in 2018, he wrote the anonymous op-ed in The New York Times, providing insight into the White House chaos, administrative instability, and people working to keep Donald Trump's reckless impulses in check. And his subsequent book, a New York Times bestseller, is a warning. Well, the Marine General that I mentioned, the first Chief of Staff, Kelly, he did say, uh, I mean, he didn't, it wasn't exactly headline news, but he did say that the problem is that the American people need to be educated about who they vote for, for high office. And that was a polite way, I think, of saying, you know, that people shouldn't have voted for Trump or they should have vetted him a little bit more. So how do you break the spell, though? You've got propaganda outfits like Fox and Sinclair and others that basically, they're not any different from Putin's propaganda operation, frankly. So how do you break the spell there? I mean, I, my assumption would be that if en masse, all of these people that we've been, we're talking about who've seen Trump up close and personal, if they took out full-page ads in all of the newspapers in red states and appeared in TV ads. I don't, I'm just spitballing here. What's the strategy, uh, Miles? Well, I think the most important thing is for people to understand that they're being taken advantage of. Folks are really, really disinclined to see Trump for who he really is because they've been brainwashed into thinking that he loves them and he's their savior. Uh, and, and I say these things not facetiously. I mean, these are these are the the terms that folks like that use when they leave voicemails on my phone is, you know, how dare you be a traitor against our savior? Donald Trump is the real president. I mean, I get these by the dozens uh, every single week. This is what his most fervent supporters believe. The way you reach them is not to tell them that the man they think is a savior is a bad man. It's to show them that he's trying to take advantage of them. So I'll give you an example. Donald Trump's current fundraising efforts, his political fundraising efforts have been designed, according to the people who 
constructed the, the documents setting up his super PACs have been designed to allow him to exercise personal control over use of the funds. What do I mean by that? I mean that rather than raising a massive war chest of tens of millions of dollars to go spend exclusively on candidates, Trump is raising millions of dollars for himself. Uh, We saw just weeks ago, one of his fundraising appeals to supporters was to help him go get a new jet to fly around in. Um, You know, Michael Cohen, the lawyer that worked for Trump who, who defected from his universe, Cohen has said publicly, that the originating documents for these political action committees give Trump majority control over how the funds are spent. These are this is a personal cash cow for him. That's the type of thing that supporters need to have put in front of them very prominently and very regularly is the fact that they're being taken for a ride because people will stick with the tribal leader all the way till the end until they find out the tribal leader personally loathes them and is trying to take advantage of them. That's the type of thing they need to see. And we saw this effectively during the 2020 presidential campaign. My colleague, Olivia Troy, who went and worked as Mike Pence's Homeland Security Advisor, went out publicly before the election, quit from the administration, and said that when COVID emerged, Donald Trump expressed in the Oval Office satisfaction that he would no longer have to, quote, shake the hands of his disgusting supporters. That type of thing was really, really effective as people realizing Trump didn't love them. He's not a man of the people. In fact, he's the ultimate elitist. Um, and those are the messages that people around him need to get out to the American public and is the only thing that can turn some of his most fervent supporters against him. But I'll add, Ian, I think trying to get the what I call the mega MAGA crowd to reverse course is very, very difficult. I mean, once persuaded of something, it's very hard to persuade a person otherwise. So. Our best hope is going after disaffected Republicans, and polls show between 20 and 30 percent of Republicans fall in that category, people who are disillusioned with Trump and the MAGA ecosystem, uh, and trying to convince them to band together with centrists and center-left Democrats uh, to prevent the return of someone like a Donald Trump. That is our best hope politically. And in terms of the pro-Putin Trump Republicans, along with Trump himself and Madison Cawthorn, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tucker Carlson, J.D. Vance, who just got elected in Ohio to run for the Senate, Candace Owens, Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, Matt Gaetz, etc. Obviously, most of the American public support Ukraine. And it does seem that there is a de facto alliance between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Putin. It's called OPEC Plus. But there's an interesting op-ed by Josh Rogan in the Washington Post on May the 5th. America's Gulf allies are now Putin's enablers. And at a recent um, meeting of the John McCain Institute in Sedona, Arizona, Representative Tom Malinowski, a former State Department official, said, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates today are Russia's allies in the Persian Gulf by virtue of laundering Russian money and refusing categorically and deliberately to increase oil production. This is a moment when we need more countries to face a choice. Whose side are you on? Do you think that there's a way for the press to do more investigation into this triumvirate of, of sort of fascist and feudal petro-states? Well, I hate to say it, but un- unfortunately we live in an environment where 
folks like you and I, Ian, and people in the press are viewed incredibly skeptically by this audience that we need to reach. I mean, they've been persuaded by Trump and his allies that but that the media, that talking heads um, aren't to be believed and that it's a it's a conspiracy against them. Uh, so I actually think the most important voices here in shining a light are going to be from within the tribe, so to speak. In other words, we actually need more Republicans standing up from within the party and demonstrating the courage to simply tell the truth about what we're seeing when it comes to the Kremlin, Putin, Putin's allies around the world, and and most crucially, the pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party here in the United States. I mean, I, I don't say this with any sense of hyperbole. The, the pro-Putin wing of the GOP is much like Nazi sympathizers we saw in America uh, in the lead up to World War II. It's almost that bad. And the reason I say that's not hyperbolic is because the designs of our adversaries in Russia uh, and beyond are similar in that they want to uh, extend their reach further. They want to expropriate territory in their region. They want to undermine the, the West and the free world. This is genuinely, from a national security standpoint, an existential threat to Western democracy. Yet we have one of the two major political parties here in the United States partly co-opted by a movement that is sympathetic towards Vladimir Putin and his aims. That's exceptionally dangerous. Now, you know, I started my career in national security. That's where I spent most of it. I do genuinely believe uh, that that wing of my party, the Republican Party, is at the moment one of the biggest national security threats we have faced in my lifetime, because that sympathy towards autocracy is is really, really dangerous and puts us in a position uh, to be made vulnerable to Vladimir Putin's aims and, and those of, uh, you know, his allies around the world. So, you know, to your question about exposing the the extent of that danger, I, I think it's got to come from within the Republican Party to convince those millions of Americans who've now been uh, sort of won over in a misguided way to the pro-Putin side. Uh, and that's going to be a very big challenge in the in the years to come, because, again, as I noted earlier, once persuaded of something, it's very difficult to persuade people otherwise. But the opportunity we have here is, as you know, many, many Americans, the vast majority of Americans are now starting to see this conflict for what it is. Again, a moral and existential fight between freedom and autocracy. And, and that's an opportunity uh, politically to reach some of those people that we thought potentially were too far gone. And just to wear your national security hat for a bit, Miles Taylor, the war in Ukraine, to many analysts, a lot of people I spoke to didn't think it was ever going to happen, particularly Russia experts, but it did, and it seems irrational. But Putin is making a ton of money because of the price of oil, as is MBS in Saudi Arabia and MBZ in the Emirates. Now, is there a possibility that some of that money or a lot of that money could end up influencing our elections because, for example, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, just gave Jared Kushner $2 billion for his private equity fund with zero transparency against the advice of his own uh, sovereign wealth fund. So I see that as a potential danger because we know, I think the last election was $5 billion spent. So $2 billion is a pretty good down payment. Yeah, Ian, it's not just a possibility, it's an absolute certainty. And when people are fueling up their cars 
I hate to say it, but it is fueling, filling people's heads with misinformation. Let me walk you through that chain. Uh, Russia, as you know, makes most of its, as a country, most of its GDP off of those types of exports, off of energy exports. As John McCain famously said, it's a gas station masquerading as a country. So the longer we're filling up cars with Russian oil and gas, the more we are quite literally fueling Russia's misinformation efforts. The Kremlin is directly taking the money that comes into their country and using it to undermine the West. So uh, this is exactly uh, what you would call a geopolitical unforced error, is we're effectively doing this to ourselves. Now, economically, it's going to be still a long road to disentangle ourselves from Russian oil. It's going to take some time. You certainly don't want to cut all of that off cold and literally leave people in the cold in places like Eastern Europe and elsewhere. But the danger here is real. The economic entanglement we have with Russia is fueling their efforts to undermine the West. So it needs to be a strategic objective in the United States, regardless of party, Democrat or Republican, to slowly or rather to speed up the disentanglement with the Russian economy and to cut them off. Uh, You know, in, in the long run here, you have to just take Vladimir Putin seriously and listen to his words. And this is exactly what I was saying after 9-11 about Osama bin Laden, is there was a lot of debate and discussion in the national security community about what this terrorist organization would do. What are its aims? Where are they trying to go? And the simplest explanation was to just merely go back and read bin Laden's words. And you could understand his intentions. He laid them out over years in the lead up to 9-11 and largely stuck with that worldview. Vladimir Putin is the same way. And if you go back and read the strategic vision he has sketched out for his country, it is one, to restore the former Soviet Union. That is his life's work, is to go restore the former Soviet Union to capture those countries in Russia's periphery and bring them back into the fold. And two, to be viewed as a peer competitor to the United States. He wants to be seen on the international stage as an equal and to be seen as an equal He's got to exert equal force and power around the world. Well, what does that mean? That means he's going to go grab countries, and it means he's going to go do bad things around the world. Uh, That is bad for us. And so we have to take him seriously. We have to listen to Putin's words. I don't believe he's going to deviate from either of those objectives. Putin would sooner die than see that legacy forfeited. So we need to be preparing not just for the conflict in Lviv. We need to be preparing for the conflict in Los Angeles because the Russian federal government is going to continue to target America and not just as a proxy in a war in Eastern Europe, but they want to continue to penetrate the American heartland with misinformation, espionage, and other nefarious activities. And we need to be wide-eyed and clear-eyed about that. So just in the last couple of minutes, uh, to bring the conversation back to your former job, Miles Taylor, with Homeland Security, there's a bill that was put forth by Senator Tom Cotton and Congresswoman Lauren Bobert to defund the DHS's new Disinformation Governance Board. And also uh, there's an effort by Senator Rand Paul to put on hold the nomination of the Undersecretary of Intelligence and Analysis at DHS, Kenneth Weinstein. So what I find extraordinary, just to, apropos of what we're talking about, Senator Rand Paul recently got into an exchange with Secretary of State Blinken in a Senate hearing, and it was unbelievable. 
Rand Paul was literally parroting uh, Putin's talking points. And he's now he's turning around and trying to stop the DHS from doing their job and alerting the American people to ongoing Russian disinformation. Isn't there an obvious kind of link there? Well, it's it's incredibly disturbing. I mean, look, I've sat in those rooms. I've been at the top levels of the Department of Homeland Security, and I think that we should trust our DHS secretary to do what's needed to thwart foreign disinformation efforts. Now, that said, there's clearly a branding problem, and there may be some personnel problems with the office that DHS stood up on disinformation uh, governance. But the overall objective is one that needs to be pursued by the department. Uh, to be a little bit more clear, when I was at DHS, we were daily receiving intelligence reports about the Russians trying to sow misinformation and discord in the United States, pumping fake news into our country to piss people off and to divide them. Okay, no one should be opposed to stopping that. That should be a totally bipartisan thing is to stop a foreign government from pumping fake news into our country to make us fight each other. That's what the department is trying to do. And whether it's Rand Paul or Tom Cotton, there needs to be a unified front in standing up to that. Instead, they're trying to score political points against the Biden administration. And what I worry about is this is becoming a, a fake debate about whether the Department of Homeland Security is trying to be a, quote, ministry of truth. Trust me, I know the Secretary of Homeland Security. I know Ken Weinstein, the man he's trying to bring in as the Undersecretary of Intelligence. Neither of them are trying to create a ministry of truth to weigh in on our politics and, and to turn DHS into a political apparatus on those issues. What they're trying to do is keep bad guys from splitting us apart as a country and from in infiltrating our country and manipulating it with misinformation. We should all be united around that front. So what Rand Paul, Tom Cotton, and others are trying to do, I think is a complete distraction and ultimately is going to set us back from doing what we need to do, which is standing up as a country against a foreign adversary that's trying to get us to stand down on the world stage. Well, Miles Taylor, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, thanks for having me as always. And again, I've been speaking with Miles Taylor, who's the co-founder of Renew America Movement, a coalition of over 150 members and former members of the Republican Party, calling for strengthening the rule of law and restoring government ethics. Having served as Chief of Staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under the Trump administration, in 2018 he wrote the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times providing eyewitness insights into the White House chaos, administrative instability, and people working to keep Donald Trump's reckless impulses in check, and he subsequently book, a New York Times bestseller, is a warning. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at the alliance of Putin's Russia with Mohammed bin Salman's Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Zayed's United Arab Emirates and how the war in Ukraine, which makes no sense strategically for Putin, is nevertheless reaping a windfall for him with the price of oil at record highs. Stuck around St. Petersburg when I saw it was a time for a change. Killed the Tsar and its ministers Anastasia screamed in vain I rode a tank, held a generous rank When the blitzkrieg raged and the bodies stank 
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 and backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist and explorer. He's the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel and insurgent groups. His books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad and License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror. And he tweets at at RYP underscore underscore. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Young Pelton. How you doing, Ian? Very well, thanks, Robert. And you're uh, very familiar with the world of mercenaries and private military contractors, having, of course, written the book License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror. And you spent a lot of time with Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, I think you uh, you you were going to write a biography for him. He hired you, but then you had a falling out, and he sued you, or you sued him. Or where, where does that stand? <laughs> oh, we, we we've patched that up and we've moved on. So oh, good. Uh, I'm glad to know. So, tell me what is going on in Ukraine in terms of mercenaries. We know that Putin has brought in the Chechens, the Hadirovs. The, the Ukrainians call them Hadirovites. Uh, they're just a bunch of thugs and killers that the warlord Kadyrov has deployed, and that there's some Wagner group people in there. So, give us a perspective on what's happening on on the other side. Are U.S. mercenaries going in there, or other mercenaries, to help the Ukrainians? Yes, I mean, there's a group of foreigners, including Americans, that have gone in to fight on behalf of um, the Ukrainians against. Uh, Russian uh, invaders, I guess is a good word. And you have to keep in mind, this is one of the first sort of, uh, you call it a good war. In other words, where the moral clarity seems to be very clear to Westerners. So what you had is a, um, let's call it a David versus Goliath moment that we sort of think started um, this year, but actually started in 2014. And if you really think about it, Putin has doing has been doing this since uh, 1999 when he first came to power in Russia. So the situation in Ukraine is that you have a national army that's fighting off uh, an invading army that's much larger, and Westerners get the idea that these are people defending their homeland. So a lot of volunteers went over, and there were some rumors, which are not true, about. Uh, American companies paying people to go over and fight. Uh, this is the Russian narrative. And the Russians are very funny because, you know, for many years since 2014, they've been using mercenaries in Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, you remember the little green men in the Cossacks back in 2014? Uh, these were the origins of Wagner, a GRU related sort of parastatal, but uh, deniable group of armed men who are mostly Russian soldiers that fight all around the world. In this particular case, uh, the regular Russian army was used. So the Wagner elements are essentially just people assigned by the GRU to do special tasks. So uh, to answer your original question, yes, there are volunteers. Are there people getting paid money, therefore they'd be called mercenaries? Not really. So what about Malcolm Nance, who I've interviewed a number of times, and um, he's been on MSNBC a lot, although now, I mean, he basically said, I'm done talking, now I'm going to fight. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I've, I've known Malcolm for years. Uh, 
We used to train Navy SEALs together down in San Diego, and he had a, a course. He taught them about how to survive hostile environments. Um, you know, Malcolm may want to fight over there, but you have to understand there's language limitations. You know, to move, shoot, and communicate, you have to coordinate with local units. Uh, you have a significantly wide front line in which small units really don't provide that much impact. There, there are European units and American units that are operating and they are you know, firing on Russian convoys and things like that. But these kind of wars are one with large scale coordination and of course, high tech weaponry. Uh, all power to Malcolm for you know, taking the stand he is taking. But you know, again, realistically, based on the hundreds of phone calls and conversations I've had with people over there now, most of the volunteers were sent to a camp and they were told they had to sign a three-year contract and they would not be issued with a weapon. Uh, they would be helping in the support uh, element. And that's because politically, Ukraine does not want to see a bunch of foreigners dying on the front line and neither do the host nations want to see their citizens being killed. Well, it would feed into Putin's narrative, wouldn't it? That he's telling his people that he's fighting against America not against Ukraine. Well, he's fighting against a bunch oh, of Nazis. Nazis. <laughs> he's got these new, uh, there used to be neo-Nazis, but now there's Putin Nazis, which are apparently Jewish people with uh, Nazi blood that are hiding in tunnels uh, with NATO advisors. I mean, it's just insane, the, the amount of stories going through the Russian media right now. Right. Well, but, you know, some of the stuff coming from our side, I don't know where these intelligence leaks came from that, U.S. intelligence helped sink the cruiser, the flagship, the Moscow. Another, apparently, uh, frigate was hit a couple of days ago as well by a Ukrainian Neptune missile. This is true. Whether, yeah. This is absolutely true. Now, if yeah. you go back to Twitter, uh, you'll notice that uh, for a long, long time, we've had one of our highest tech drones uh, doing patterns over the Crimean area. And even before the war, uh, you know, I used to make fun of it drawing a giant penis over Ukraine, but we've had electronic assets over Ukraine and the Black Sea before the war started and, and almost on a daily method so basis. So yes, we are feeding very high quality intelligence to the Ukrainians and we are helping them in targeting even high level officers like, you know, generals and right. people that the Wagner people you're talking about are all being watched with their phone numbers are being tracked. So, yeah, we're doing a good job. Right. But blabbing about it is really stupid, isn't it? I mean, that just feeds into Putin's paranoia. And it also well, undercuts this... the fact that it's the Ukrainians who are really in the fight. We may be helping them, but they're the ones well, bearing let's... the brunt. Yeah, but you know, let's let's talk about the reality of warfare today. You know, this is not World War One. This is not World War Two. There's no win. There's no lose. There's no sort of, uh, you know, tank on tank, soldier on soldier. We have been fighting a, a hybrid war, and we began with uh, applying sanctions. We then also used propaganda by basically flat-footing uh, Putin's false flag attempts. Remember, he was trying to invent some reason to invade the Ukraine. And, and Blinken and Biden sort of shut him down. Uh, we're also providing intelligence, smart weapons. We're, you know, using diplomacy. We're using all the tools. 
and now what we've done is we've ramped it up a notch. So violence warfare, you know, you can take the five step or the seven step method, but warfare goes from absolute peace to absolute violence. And the U.S. is managing the steps of violence because, you you know, Putin is threatening to use nuclear missiles against either the West or whoever doesn't like him. So we're being very cautious, is, is my guess. And again, I'm speaking with Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist and explorer. He's the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had firsthand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel and insurgent groups. And his books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad and License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror. So you've met with the people that run the... Uh, Wagner Group, right? The private military, con- Russia's private military contractor. And, uh, yeah, have you met with Prigozhin, Putin's chef, who owns Let, it? Let's be very, very careful here. Uh, the Wagner Group, which is called the company, it's not called the Wagner Group, is a sanctioned entity. And I have had discussions through proxies about doing a documentary about their facilities and their operations around the world. This was last year. And I was invited to you know, they know who I am and they know my stuff. So they, I was invited to document what they do. And uh, starting with uh, Donetsk and then whether it's Syria, Libya, whatever, because they felt that the parliament would legalize PMCs or private uh, military militias. Uh, they were not necessarily preparing for the war at that time. And also I have some reservations in portraying a element of a state intelligence apparatus as being a private military company because technically it is and technically it isn't and wagner has been known to do terrible 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 things so i i backed off of that project because i just felt that this would be going down a path that i would regret so that's that story i see so but they are active in africa are they not they're basically trying to drive the french out of west africa Yes, and so Wagner are used as tools. Uh, if you remember, there was an attempt to overthrow Libya in 2019, and that failed, and then they brought in Russians, and then those Russians were using sniping, uh, directing artillery fire, and they put a lot of pressure on Tripoli, uh, and then the whole thing stopped. Uh, they're also, they went into Mozambique to help with ISIS, um, they were involved in the assassination of the president of Chad. I, I spent a month in Chad this summer investigating that. Uh, they're involved in Mali now. And of course, you've, if you read the news, they were trying to stage uh, abuses and blame it on the French. And yes, they, they're sort of the sharp end of the spear. Uh, they're the muscle. You know, they're the muscle that the UAE uses to enter places that have been toppled or threatened with being toppled. You find them in Sudan. Syria is where they're most famous, of course. But at the end of the day, you can find Wagner in about a dozen countries. And they are essentially squatting, training, guarding, you know, allowing certain uh, dictatorships or autocrats to survive. We don't have a, a solution for that. You know, for example, in Libya, you have Russians sitting on the largest oil field called Shabara, and we don't have any way to get them off of there. And uh, they're in Syria. And part of what Trump did, of course, was to pull our troops out of strategic areas so we couldn't threaten them. So we don't have a plan for that. And in Ukraine, you're not going to see a lot of mercenaries fighting on behalf of Russia other than the Kadyrovites, which you mentioned. 
and they're they're called the TikTok soldiers because they like to make videos and shoot at random things and film themselves. But that's about as as weird as it's going to get in Ukraine. But the U.S. Uh, military did have a big dust up with the the Wagner Group in Syria, and they they absolutely crushed them, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. So remember that you know mythology is important, and when you talk about these mercenary groups, they're just a bunch of guys with very low level ground and and. Bare enough, barely enough air support. They had to seize a refinery by a certain date in order to get a percentage of the proceeds from that refinery. They moved towards that. And then we had a task force in the region that politely told them that you're not going to cross the river, you're, you know, stand still. And they, for some strange reason, just ignored that and went to grab this refinery. And they were methodically and surgically uh, almost eliminated. There's some very funny videotapes of these poor Russians talking about how badly they were bombed and hit. Um, again, these are parastatal, but they're sort of, I don't know, It's they're not professional units. They're sort of, you know, catch as can. You know, Bellingcat's done a lot of great work, if you know about Bellingcat sure. and their work. Yeah. Um, they have gone deep inside uh, Wagner and the people, the training process, their passport numbers, phone numbers. The UN's done a great report on how the UAE pays for Wagner Group in Africa. So there's plenty of stuff out there, but we shouldn't be too impressed with just, you know, the name Wagner. So you brought up the UAE, Robert Young Pelton. So let, let's talk about what I think is the big story here. And it's really not gotten a lot of attention. There was an opinion piece on May the 5th in the Washington Post by Josh Rogan. America's Gulf allies are now Putin's enablers. And just a, what last weekend at the McCain Institute Forum in Sedona, Arizona, Representative Tom Malinowski, um, former uh, State Department official, said, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates today are Russia's allies in the Persian Gulf by virtue of laundering Russian money and refusing categorically and deliberately to increase oil production. This is a moment where we need more countries to face a choice. Whose side are you on? So we know that the Saudis and the Emiratis for the longest time have been throwing a lot of money around Washington. That's what they do. They launder their reputations and whitewash themselves. But this is a whole new level, isn't it? Uh, I mean, let's talk about this because, you know, we know that during the 2016 campaign, there was a meeting in the Seychelles with <laughs> your uh, buddy Eric Prince of Blackwater and with, with one of Putin's oligarchs and uh, George Nader, this peculiar pedophile that the UAE used as a kind of front man. And we know about Tom Barrack as well, working for the Trump inauguration. So where do you want to start in this story? Because it's, it's one that we really need to flesh out. All right. Well, so Ian, you know, what I'm probably most famous or infamous for is writing a book called The World's Most Dangerous Places. And it's a sort of humorous roll up of the entire globe and all the, the evil things and the bad places and the dodgy people that shape our world. So I tend to have a very wide view of history and ongoing events. And I also spend a lot of time in terrible places talking to terrible people. And, and you know, I have a, a network of people who 
you know, we swap ideas and we and we share information and we watch things from a very different perspective than, let's say, the media or sort of a political wonk. So what I started to see during the campaign which elected Trump was that there was an attempt to essentially, you know, back both sides, a very sort of mediocre attempt by George Nader and some people to get money and influence to both the Clinton side and also the Trump side. And when Trump looked like he was winning, there was a major shift by both Russia and Gulf entities to support Donald Trump. Uh, so much so that, uh, you know, Robert Mueller spent a lot of time and energy pointing out exactly how many contacts were made by Russian entities and spies with members of Trump's cabinet and advisors. What he didn't cover was the number and the impact of the meetings between Gulf families or dictators or rulers and the Trump campaign. And one of the things that the Gulf dynasties have is money. They have lots of it. And one of the things that scares them the most is how easy they are to topple. You know, we're talking about tiny countries with familial ruling and not a lot of depth in terms of their um, defense structure. And Arab Springs scared these people to death. They saw how quickly these autocrats can be replaced by, you know, mobs. And so they began a process in, in 2013, when I say they, the UAE, of resetting the clock. In other words, taking these fledgling democracies, starting with Egypt, and turn them into autocracies. And it's very easy to do. It, it's You simply put a bunch of money in generals' pockets and you have a coup. And then there's your new CC guy, and he's, as Trump called him, his favorite dictator. So this process was brought to Donald Trump in a series of meetings, along with the idea that they could reset the Middle East, which we call the Abraham Accords. And this would essentially allow the Saudis and the UAE and Israel and a group of backers to control the investment and stability of developing nations. So under Trump, you saw a lot of coups in Africa, and you saw a lot of replacement of longtime leaders, and you saw people like Wagner show up, and you saw strange people like Khalifa Haftar, you know, this doddering former CIA guy, you know, attacking attempts to create a democratic nation in Libya. Well, this was all part of a plan. And the second part of the plan was when Trump was shocked to find out he was no longer president, was pulling all the troops out in Germany and Somalia, uh, Syria, to allow the Gulf leaders to flow their influence into the region and to allow Russia to take control of these areas. Now, most people know this, but they don't see it on a continuum. So the next thing that happened was Biden got elected and there's a dossier. There's a very embarrassing dossier of all the things the UAE and Saudi Arabia did during the Trump administration. And it ranges from having a slush fund for Kushner to do dirty tricks to killing, you know, Khashoggi, so on and so forth. This dossier it was presented by Turkey to MBS, who's the uh, crown prince of the UAE. It was presented by the U.S. government to the Gulf rulers. And this chilled them because they realized that we were now making moves towards Iran, which they considered to be their mortal enemy. And we were not necessarily going to guarantee their freedom and independence to do whatever they want. So what does a small family run dictatorship do whose only resource is oil? 
Well, many people forget that during COVID, oil was as cheap as $20 a barrel. This is a, another major threat to uh, what I would call petro dictatorships. So the simple solution was to find a way to topple the U.S.'s control over both the economic activities of the globe and also the moral activities of the globe. And this is where the attack in Ukraine comes in. The Gulf rulers needed a dramatic change in the new world order. So, Robert, you just dropped a bit of a bombshell there that, in effect, what you're arguing is that this war in Ukraine, which seems incredibly irrational and hard to understand why Putin would do something so dangerous and reckless, you're suggesting it's actually an oil play in conjunction with the UAE and Saudi Arabia? Well, let's let's be sort of simplistic and crude. We could call Russia a petro-fascist state if we wanted to be humorous. In other words, their singular uh, reason for success is petroleum, and they have a stranglehold on Europe. Uh, we could look at Saudi Arabia, and we could look at the UAE and other producers and say that these countries can literally change the world by changing the price of oil. Uh, it's not easy to just change the price of oil during something like COVID, because if demand drops, then the price of oil drops. So it's a commodity. You know, it's bought and sold every day based on predictions of its value in the future. So let's say you wanted to have absolute power. What you want is money, because money buys elections, money buys influence, money buys investments. And you want to create an investment climate, both politically and financially, where you can reap the benefits of knowing when things are going to fail and when things are going to succeed. So the 1922 memo, as it's called, which was drafted way back in 2008, but was basically implemented last year, lays out a very specific plan to destabilize Europe and the US as the main power brokers and brings in China as sort of the backstop, meaning that China is an economic powerhouse and they will work with the UAE, with Russia and with Saudi Arabia to develop, you know, Africa, Asia, places like that. So we could also take it another way and say, when was the last time you put gas in your car? When was the last time you read the news about the stock market? When was the last time that you sat down and discussed the future of America's economy, which literally before the war in Ukraine was going to rebound at a ferocious level. And now we're talking about a recession. Now we're talking about paying $100 to go to work. So we have been attacked by this plan. We just are not sort of wide scope enough to accept it. And, and I wish the media and politicians would accept it for what it is. This is an attack on the American control of global power. And it's also a, an attack on democracy and the rule of law, isn't it? And as much as these petro states want a kind of fascist or, you know, medieval kind of, you know, Structure. monarchy. Yeah, correct. Well, because autocracy gets things done. If you watch Northern Africa, there were 13 countries that were like, pink, 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 which just toppled like dominoes. And suddenly you had a democratic nation suddenly turn into an autocratic, autocratic nation. These people are then beholden on the money and funds that come from the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Look at Turkey. Turkey in 2020 was bombing and shooting at UAE advisors in Libya. Now they're partners. Now they're talking about investment and, and Turkey is the key to the Crimea because of the Bosphorus, right? So these are strategic moves made by crippling people and then funding people. 
I don't see America putting forth a plan saying, look, at some point we're going to wake up and realize that we have been attacked. It's not just about the Ukraine. It's not just about Libya and Egypt and Tunisia, Sudan. Uh, it's not about these small countries. It's about ultimately if we control our own destiny. Well, the article that I mentioned in the Washington Post on May the 5th by Josh Rogan, America's Gulf allies are now Putin's enablers. Just to quote a little bit from it. Meanwhile, MBS Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, soon to be king, is actively romancing Republicans. He has given Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, $2 billion in private equity fund with zero transparency, a war chest that Trump world could use against Biden in 2024. Is that the plan? Yes, they need, if not Trump, they need someone very pliable in the GOP to take power in the next election because Trump essentially was their handmaiden. He, he laid the groundwork for a lot of what we see today by looking the other way uh, when democracies were toppled. Uh, Biden, to his credit, has told these people that no, we're, we're here to expand democracy and we're not gonna support this sort of flow of autocratic uh, coup, coups that have changed Africa and Asia. So is this important enough for someone to come to this country and start buying elections, start shifting things, yes. And again, we're talking about hybrid warfare, which is not people shooting guns at each other. It's people paying for lobbyists. It's people pushing ideas into social media. It's, it's whether it's you know, well-known Fox broadcasters <laughs> repeating Russian propaganda slogans, or whether it's just the, the ability to influence people at local elections. You know, this country has been split in half, not by mistake, but by design. And this is part of this plan. Sure, and that's also been Putin's plan, to turn us against each other, and we've obliged him. Well, uh, they're the same people. So in an autocratic society, the goal is to divide democratic states into as many small pieces as you can. Well, let's go back to the dossier that you mentioned Mm -hmm. that lays out this plan on this Russian Mohammed bin Salman, Mohammed bin Zayed, Saudi Arabia, Gulf, Russia. It's now called OPEC Plus, but these guys are all working in concert and they want to uh, obviously get rid of Biden and American democracy and put in a, either Trump or somebody like Trump because then they'd have a government just like theirs where, you know, Basically, gangster government. That's what Putin's about, and obviously, MBS is a thug. Well, it's feudalism. Well. It's feudalism in which families decide who runs the country, and they yeah. decide who's wealthy. Oligarchy is no different than lords and ladies, you know, in the medieval mm -hmm. structure. So, it's it's a, it's a it's a tribal structure that we created back in the twenties when oil was first discovered, and we made tribal rulers, the leaders of what are now the most powerful and potentially dangerous countries on earth. So when Gina Haspel was the head of the CIA, she broke with the White House and exposed the murdering of Shoji and pinned it on MBS, which is what he was the author of it. He ordered the hit and the dismemberment of the Washington Post reporter. Prior to that, because they didn't want to give Kushner a security clearance early on in the in the Trump administration. Is that where it all started, that CIA formed a task force to investigate 
Kushner because they wouldn't give him a security clearance. Eventually, Trump himself gave him a security clearance. Um, well, well let's, be, him. let's be clear. There, there's two windows. One is the before Donald Trump was sworn in as president, there was an extraordinary amount of activity with his people reaching out and people from foreign nations, basically spies and influencers, reaching out uh, and steps being taken under the presidency of Obama to say, we're gonna get rid of these sanctions, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. Uh, and so yes, there was absolutely a number of intercepts put into place because American citizens were communicating with Russian, UAE, Saudi spies. When those people became the White House, you know, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump, they maintained non-secure communications. So, you know, both Trump and Jared had three phones, one of them being completely unsecured, consumer modeled with a face lock. That phone was hacked, as, as we know from Jeff Bezos' story. Uh, in multiple communications with MBS, they, these phones were infected. And then their information was shared amongst intelligence communities around the world. Our intelligence agencies are not allowed to spy on Americans, technically, but foreign agencies can. And there was a very uh, robust effort to watch these people and to gather their communications to see what they are up to. And currently, there are multiple investigations by the FBI against people that are named and unnamed who were part of undermining uh, U.S. security. Now, we know about Tom Barak, right? We know about um, Rudy's in trouble. We know that certain cell phones have been seized from high-level individuals. That is supposed to go into play in June. And this is a counter-espionage investigation. It's not just money laundering and things like that. So there is something big inside the former White House being investigated by law enforcement. And this dossier that tells the story of what is really happening today, who the real enemies are, this triumvirate of Saudi Arabia, the Gulf and Putin, all working together to undermine American democracy and its global influence over uh, the oil markets, etc. Um, I, I want to I correct you. This is people foreigners working with people inside the White House. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's an overt campaign by the former Trump administrators to undermine this democracy, which right. you saw, which you well, saw that, in But January they're doing 6th. it now with, uh, the Republicans are doing it now with massive voter suppression. Exactly. This is the plan to you know, win in 2024 with either Trump or a Trump clone, and then right. we will be just like Russia and Saudi Arabia, and will not overnight, but that will be the trajectory we'll be on. So who's going to publish this dossier? Who's going to bring out <laughs> all this counterintelligence well, information to stop well, this takeover? I, I, I have been in communication with a number of people who are very interested in what this thing is, and they know what it is because it's been written down and circulated. The, the problem is it takes time. And, and they have to go back and recreate a lot of evidence. If, if Most people don't you read UN uh, reports, but if you, if you read the UN report on the attempt to overthrow Libya, there's mountains and mountains of granular information in there about Americans trying to destabilize a country with the blessing of Donald Trump and Bolton, right? 
something that suddenly reversed the entire uh, American policy. There's mountains of information on what Jared Kushner was doing in the Abraham Accords, where Gaza wasn't even part of it. I mean, it wasn't even a peace treaty. It was basically a way to move money in between Israel and the UAE. There's plenty of reporting on Turkey and Israel welcoming Russian oligarchs to bring their money in and protecting it from our sanctions. So it's not a secret what's going on. It's just that it has to be put together in a collective manner. And U.S. law enforcement is, I mean, they were hammer and tongs on this thing and then they had to go away for one six and they came back at it so i do believe and i do hope that in january there will be some significant action on the people who are working actively to undermine american democracy well robert young pelton i thank you very much for joining us here today i appreciate it it's always a pleasure Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Young Pelton, as an author, filmmaker, journalist, and explorer. He's the publisher of Dangerous Magazine, has had first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel, and insurgent groups. And his books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad, and License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror. And he tweets at at RYP underscore underscore. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine